Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. On today's show... Human rights attorney Michael Svard has represented Israeli and Palestinian human rights groups in the country's court system for two decades. We'll ask him why he felt compelled to compare violent settlers in the West Bank to the Ku Klux Klan and why he calls them the new anti-Semites. Also, why he believes Israeli authorities aren't fighting the phenomenon as well as they could. Then later on the show, Haaretz senior writer Judy Maltz, who specializes in covering the Jewish world, will give us an update on the situation of Jews in the Ukraine who are facing a possible Russian invasion. She'll also tell us about news of a possible revolution in Israel on the hot topic of who is a Jew and fill us in on the unexpectedly new trendy city to move to in Israel. All of that coming right up. We'd like to welcome to Haaretz Weekend one of Israel's leading human rights attorneys, Michael Svald. Hi, Alison. It's so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. So Michael is legal advisor to a long list of Israeli and Palestinian human rights and peace organizations, more movements, activists. He's argued on their behalf at the Israeli Supreme Court and is the author of several books, right? The most recent being The Wall and the Gate, Israel-Palestine and the Legal Battle for Human Rights. But we're here to talk about your article in Haaretz, which made quite a splash. The headline does not pull any punches. Violent Israeli settlers are starting to resemble the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. And you said you were inspired to write the piece because of your work for Yesh Din, which represents Palestinians who have been harmed by settler violence. So there's been a big debate in Israel in recent months over calling settler violence terror. In the past, there's been debate over using Nazi analogies. I'm interested in your choice of the Ku Klux Klan as your point of comparison. Can you talk about that? Well, in fact, in the printed edition, the title was The New Antisemites. Mm-hmm. This piece is something that has brewed in me for a long time. It has been almost two decades that I've been exposed to cases involving Israeli settlers' violence or other types of violations of law perpetrated against Palestinians. And as time went by, there were several insights that I was embarrassed to admit to myself that I'm reaching One of them being that they resemble more and more the kind of people that persecuted my great-great-parents and their great-great-parents. You're the grandson of Holocaust survivors. I am the grandson of Holocaust survivors, but also other Jewish Israelis who are not grandchildren of Holocaust survivors are grandchildren of people who were in some way persecuted for being Jewish. The more I was exposed to these cases and as time grew and this phenomenon became more acute, more vicious, I couldn't evade the comparison. And the second insight, which was to a large extent even more damning, was that it's not about them. It's about us. Because every society has people who do bad things. The question is not whether a society has such people, but what do the institutions of that society do about it? And it's not only that I got to the conclusion that the Israeli authorities are not doing enough or not doing anything at all about it, 
But my conclusion is much, much worse, that Israeli governments, consecutive governments, and all Israeli authorities have been exploiting and using settler criminality, what they see as Israeli interests, to entrench the domination over the Palestinians and mainly to take over lands. Right, I'll use your own words in the piece that they constitute a tool that benefits Israel as it brings about politically significant unilateral changes aimed at consolidating its rule in the territory conquered in 1967. Can you describe that connection between criminal acts, which just kind of looks like, you know, hate, as in the Ku Klux Klan activity, and, you know, some sort of systematic political goal or strategy? There are different types of criminality. There is, of course, the one that is most uh, reported when it is reported. Not always we want to hear about these things, but sometimes Israeli media and international media does put the limelight on this phenomenon. And usually what takes the stage is the most violent acts committed by extreme settlers against Palestinian individuals or communities. Apart from that, there is a systematic land grab that is done by a much larger circle of the settler society by way of trespassing into Palestinian lands. When I say Palestinian lands, it could be private registered Palestinian land. It could be not registered land that is used for grease and for sheep and things like that, and then built on it without permits, without any um, authority. And what we see is that the Israeli government is coming later on and retroactively koshers these acts, both when we're dealing with the violent acts, which are committed with an intent to push the Palestinians into their ever-shrinking living space and not allow them the access to those open lands. And we see that the army, for example, is using a policy and a practice of closing areas and declaring them closed military zones because there are quote-unquote frictions, which is a a euphemism for attacks by Jewish settlers on the Palestinian farmers. And that way the attackers, the culprits, not only get away with what they have done, but they also are successful in realizing their goal to limit the access of Palestinian farmers to the lands. You're painting a narrative in which Settlers violently attack Palestinians physically and, you know, commit vandalism and hurt their land and there are clashes on their territory. Therefore, the Israeli authorities say, oh, this is dangerous territory. It's a place where there's clashes and close it off to the Palestinians basically handing the violent settlers a victory. Yeah, that's what happens almost a daily basis. Of course, they they close it. They say... Well, the Palestinians can come if they coordinate the access, so it suddenly becomes a place where you can get there only with permits from the army, and the army can't be everywhere all the time, so Mm -hmm. it's a very limited thing. And eventually, many of these parcels of lands are eventually neglected, and the Palestinian farmers are driven out of these areas. And later on, the Israeli government, seeing that there is a stretch of land that is not used, will allocate it to development and expansion of Israeli settlements. Just to move away from the policy discussion for a moment and the current events, you open your article with the story of a young Palestinian, Yusuf Aza. Can you talk a little bit about his story and your long-term connection to his family? I don't want to spoil for those who have not read the piece, Mm -hmm. and I do want people to read it, and I think it's a moving story. I know Yusuf since 2005, so that's 17 years. And I knew him when he was a small kid, 
that was attacked by a neighbor settler. He lives in Hebron, in the neighborhood of Tel Rumeda, and there is a settlement there. And he was a victim when he was nine years old. And that's the first time when I met him, because Yeshdin assisted him and his family to file a complaint and go through the investigation procedures. Then I stumbled with him <laughs> two years ago, when suddenly I was sitting in a cafe in Tel Aviv and reading draft appeals that my intern wrote against decisions by the uh, West Bank police to close cases, complaints by Palestinians. And we have this project in which we look into the investigation files and see whether we agree with the police that there is no reason to press charges. And when we think that they are wrong, we file appeals. And in one of the appeals, I found the name of Yusuf Azza, this small kid that I met so many years ago. And I realized that he's now no longer a kid, not even a teenager. He's more than 20 years old, and he is still being harassed and attacked by the settlers in Hebron. And still the law enforcement agencies completely ignore him. And I went to meet him, and I found out that he, in the time that passed, he became a football player, and he even was a player in the Palestinian youth national team playing in international games. The whole story of this family is quite tragic and amazing. His father, who I knew again in 2005 when Yusuf was only nine, his hand was electrified when he was ordered by soldiers in Hebron in 1994 after the massacre in the cave of the Patriarch by Baruch Goldstein, to climb a electricity pole to take down a PLO flag that some young people from Hebron hang there. And he was electrified and he lost all nerve abilities in his hand. And the same day that he was injured like that, he lost his livelihood because uh, he was a tailor. So the whole story of the family, with all the results of them being surrounded by settlers and by incompetent slash completely apathetic law enforcement agencies, was for me a good example of what's going on in this field. And the two incidents kind of bookend your career, you know, as a younger activist in the legal arena and the more experienced you are today, when you sort of zoom out and you look at those almost two decades, what do you observe about the uh, dynamic of settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank and the response of the Israeli authorities? Have you seen like any kind of direction change evolution in any particular way? Unfortunately, what I see is that throughout the years that I'm very intensively involved with these kind of cases is that as time passed by, those elements among settlers who commit the crimes, who do criminal acts, get more and more dangerous and more and more strategic about what they do. And there is more and more collaboration with uh, governmental authorities. Things that in the past were unthinkable today are a daily occurrence. And the idea that land grab that began in a criminal act will eventually be covered with legality, so-called legality. Of course, all settlements are illegal under international law. But in the eyes of the Israeli system, 
they would be koshered retroactively, would be given the permits and so on. This is the regular way things go. So the Israeli government is expanding settlements and developing its presence in the West Bank, colonizing the West Bank within the restraints that internal politics and external diplomatic relationship impose on it. But then the criminal elements among the settler community walks in and fill in the blanks and do the stuff that the governments of Israel cannot do because of the political restrictions. Later on, the government comes and gives it approval retroactively. And that way, we have division of labor in how to grab the lands of Palestinians, how to drive them into their ever-shrinking enclaves. So does that make you cynical when Israeli political leaders and even settler leaders and members of the settler community denounce the use of violence against Palestinians? Absolutely. The way that the Israeli government and the political echelon is addressing the phenomena of settler criminality is very similar to the way it is addressing, you know, now the, the NSO Pegasus affair. To a large extent, it is complicit in it, directly allows it, even uses it, exploits it. It sometimes provides it official approval. In other cases, it's a wink. And in other cases, when the PR disaster is impossible to deal with, then you will hear all kinds of, you know, condemnations and promises that will never, ever be kept to deal with the matter. You also draw the parallel between settler violence and the NSO spyware affair of uh, using this uh, advanced surveillance. You make the comparison that we only care about settler violence or it only really makes the headlines when it occurs against Israeli Jewish human rights activists. And we're only paying attention to the NSO spyware scandal when that technology is being used against Jewish Israeli citizens and not against Palestinians or uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Absolutely. I had clients several years ago. These were young Israeli soldiers in the Israeli intelligence in Unit uh, 8200. And they came out and told the Israeli public, look, this is what we're doing. We undress the Palestinians. We collect information about their personal life to use it later on for collaboration, to extract collaboration, things like that. No one cared in Israel. And that is really, really a shameful situation when we only care about ourselves. You've said in the past that the activities of the NGOs that you work with are basically filling the role of opposition to the occupation that was once played or should be played by the left-wing parties in parliament. So I'm very curious about what you think about parties like Labour and Merit sitting in a coalition led by Naftali Bennett, the former head of the Yesha Council, who began his political career challenging Benjamin Netanyahu from the right, saying that he wasn't supportive enough of the settler movement. How do you view these presumably allies of uh, your causes, say in Merit's party, being part of this government? Well, it's clear that they have made clear their priorities. And it's clear that ending the occupation is not top priority. Now, whether this is a tactical decision and temporary one, because I understand also the reasons why they went into this government, and I understand why they thought it was urgent to do almost everything possible to take Netanyahu out of the prime minister's office. And yet, this means that the fight to end the occupation is still not led by any political, Israeli political party. And that's amazing. 
What do you say to your critics on the right when they say, look at the NGOs and these legal activities that you're using to fight the occupation, not in the political arena, and accuse you of subverting the democratic will of the Israeli people, which is clearly reflected in the uh, makeup of our current Knesset, our current government? This is an argument that assumes there is democracy. But how can you call a government that rules over millions of people who have no right to vote or to be elected or run to government and have no word in the corridors of power where their future and fate is being decided. Is that a democracy? And a final question, I hope you don't mind if we get a little personal, because this piece, even though it was a strong political piece, had a lot of personal passion in it. There's been a lot of talk about the exhaustion on the ideological left in Israel. In Haaretz, the former director of Breaking the Silence, wrote about how she, like many, left the country for a long period of time after she said she felt, quote, physically and mentally broken by her years of struggle. Others have left the country permanently. So I'm interested in what keeps you here and has kept you fighting for so long. Well, first, the former director of Breaking the Silence, my good, good friend, Yuli Novak, has returned, and she's here, and I'm sure we'll hear from her a lot. And I think that she understood, as she, I think, writes in her book, something that I also agree with, that this is our place. At the end of the day, this is where I live. This is where my family lives. This is where my children live. Knowing that this is my place, I also know that I have a moral obligation to do whatever I can to make this place a better place and to undo the many wrongs that this place is infested with. And yes, sometimes I get depressed and sometimes I feel that things are going in the wrong direction. And yes, they are going in the wrong direction recently, but that does not mean that it will continue to go in that direction. And I want to remind all the listeners that no one anticipated the collapse of the Berlin Wall even a month before it happened. And with all the experts we have in Israel, the million experts on Arabs, no one anticipated the first intifada or the second intifada or the Arab Spring, and no one anticipated the fall of the apartheid regime in Southern Africa. So what I'm trying to say is that while things look gloomy, big historical changes many times happen suddenly because there are cracks underneath the surface. And I'm in the business of trying to widen these cracks. I know for sure that eventually the occupation will end. I don't know how long it will take, and I don't know how much blood we will shed until that moment, but it will end because it's not sustainable and because deep down inside, I'm sure all Israelis know that it is not just, that you cannot hold millions of people that way for generations. So I'm here not because I have a religious belief that it will happen, but I think that there is a force that drives us there, and I'm in the business of trying to further that cause, and by now it became an addiction. Michael, thank you so much for including in that living, <laughs> coming here and uh, joining us at, at Haaretz. Everyone, please go out there and uh, read Michael's piece, headlined, Violent Israeli Settlers Are Starting to Resemble the KKK. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Now I'd like to welcome Judy Maltz, our Ace Haaretz journalist who covers the Jewish world along with a big portfolio of other topics. How are you, Judy? I'm great. 
So as we record, the world is still watching the Russia-Ukraine border with bated breath, trying to figure out what is happening in Vladimir Putin's mind. Is there really going to be an invasion? Is this just a brinksmanship exercise? It looks like that's what it may have been. Anyway, for you, this must feel a little bit like deja vu because you covered the Ukrainian Jewish community in 2014 during the Russian invasion of Crimea, the lead up when it happened and the aftermath. So afterwards, you reported on a big wave of Aliyah. This time around, do you see a lot of Jews in the region contemplating fleeing to Israel? Well, right now, according to sources that I've spoken with in the Jewish agency, there's no sign of that whatsoever. The way to look is to look at the number of Aliyah files that have been opened, because anyone who wants to make Aliyah needs to go to a Jewish agency office, or if it's in the former Soviet Union, to Nativ, and put in an official request. You have to be able to prove that you have at least one Jewish grandparent and, you know, proof of your Jewish roots. It's a process. It can take six months a year. So usually when bad things are happening in a country, the Jewish agency will suddenly see a spike in the number of Aliyah files that are being open. As of this week, and I spoke to him, they are seeing no difference whatsoever from this month a year ago, this month, six months ago. Everything is the same. Now, it could happen. Russia could invade, and then we might see people lining up outside the Jewish agency offices. But right now, that's not happening. Even if they did that, it wouldn't be such an easy process. They couldn't just say, I'm Jewish, get me out of here. If it came to that and Israel decides on some sort of emergency evacuation, I'm sure they're not going to wait for people to get the birth certificate notarized and get a special letter from a lawyer. They will make concessions, I'm sure, if the situation is very bad. At least I want to hope that they will. So you published an article in Haaretz about how the Ukraine-Russia crisis is playing out here in Israel about emigrants, maybe those who came out in 2014 when you were writing about it, who are getting involved in the fight from far away. And you wrote that loyalties aren't as straightforward as one might think. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, you would have assumed that those who came from Russia were rooting for Russia and those who came from Ukraine were rooting for Ukraine. But actually, it's not necessarily the case. Pretty much most of the ones, the people I spoke to who came from Ukraine, yes, they were rooting for Ukraine. It turns out there's also this generational thing. People who came in recent years tend to be more pro-Ukrainian. People who came in the early 90s when the big Aliyah wave started, they tend to be more pro-Russian, especially if they came from Russia. But you will find that there's something called the Putin Aliyah. These are Jews who fled Russia in recent years because of Putin, and they are definitely not rooting for Russia in this one. Anything surprising about uh, what's going on in the Russian and Ukrainian communities in Israel? I heard an amazing story just a couple hours ago from a friend. Back in 2014, things were worse. I mean, there were families splitting apart over this. You know, one brother was pro-Russian, another pro-Ukrainian. There were people who were getting fired from jobs. You might remember, they weren't huge, but there were demonstrations outside both the Russian and Ukrainian embassies here in Tel Aviv. We haven't seen much of that in this latest round. But a friend of mine told me this morning that there aren't that many religious Russians 
or Russian speakers, I should say. But there is a phenomena of Chazra Bichuva. Some of them come here and do get turned on to Judaism and become Orthodox, and some of them become very Orthodox. So he's telling me there's this Facebook group of matchmakers for Russian speakers. And a few of the matchmakers on this, obviously Orthodox, few of the matchmakers on this Facebook group were reporting of shiduchim, matches, that were being broken up because one family <laughs> was wow. pro-Russian and one was pro-Ukrainian. Yeah, so that's quite a phenomenon. Huh? Wow, wow, those yeah. are pretty strong emotions yeah. to get into that Romeo and Juliet situation, right? Yeah. right? So in a case of interesting timing, maybe unfortunate timing, if there would be a Ukrainian aliyah, you've also been publishing articles on different immigration developments in Israel that would make it harder and not easier if Ukrainian Jews wanted to come to Israel, if that's what they chose to do, right? So one article was a crackdown on what is called passport aliyah. Can you tell us about that? So according to the law of return, originally anybody who was Jewish could have the right to immigrate to Israel and receive automatic citizenship. It was later amended in 1970 to include also the children and grandchildren of Jews. What we found in recent years was that there's been this huge aliyah from the former Soviet Union. And people were trying to figure out what is going on here, because these were kind of good years. Why were they leaving? And it turned out that there was this phenomena of people who were applying for Aliyah simply because they wanted the passport. They would come, get the passport, and then leave within a very short time, sometimes even a week. And the reason this was happening suddenly, because there was a change in Israeli law that allowed you to get a passport immediately. Before that, you had to wait about a year, and you got these temporary travel documents, but not an official Israeli passport. And you say, why do Russians or Ukrainians need an Israeli passport? Apparently, one of the reasons I heard is that it's easier for them to travel with an Israeli passport than with a Russian or a Ukrainian passport. Another reason people were doing this was not so much for the passport per se, but because they could come to Israel. And some were probably a very, very small minority, but the authorities found out about these cases. They were coming to get free medical care or free medical procedures. Because in Israel, we have socialized medicine and a very, very good health system. They could come, do what they need to do in the hospitals here, and then go back. Of course, every immigrant to Israel also gets a whole package of financial incentives. There's uh, Ulpan. I'm not sure that's what they were coming mm-hmm. from. But there's, you know, monthly stipends to help cover rent payments. So some people were coming and taking the money and going away. We had another phenomenon, which you know about, because Allison, you've been mm-hmm. writing a lot about this. Since the COVID, a lot of Jews who do not have Israeli citizenship discovered for the first time in their lives that they can't come to Israel and that they can't visit their friends and relatives. And some of them had parents here and children here since March 2020, Israel, even when it wasn't on lockdown, was not letting in foreign nationals. And for many people, the idea came up, why don't we just get apply for Aliyah? We'll get a passport and then we can come and go as we like. The Ministry of Interior found out that this was going on and decided to crack down on it. Now, on the Russian-speaking passport Aliyah, they've already 
done one phase of crackdown a couple years ago. They said, okay, you can have your passport when you arrive, but instead of getting it for five years, you can only get it for one year now. And after a year, we're going to look, check up on you, see what's going on. Yeah. Whether you're here still, how much time you're spending in Israel, and we'll decide whether to renew it. The new step, which I reported on last week, is that the Ministry of Interior is preparing this new form that everybody applying for Aliyah will have to sign, in which they hereby declare that they are committed to moving to Israel immediately and permanently. And the assortment of questions to show that this is their real intention, such as, did you sell your house? Did you sell your car? Are you bringing a lift to Israel? Did you take your kids out of school? Did you resign from your job? Did you open a bank account in Israel? Do you have a house in Israel? And whenever you say yes to any of those questions, you need to provide documentation. So you can say no to all of them. But if you say to no to all of them, they will deduce from that that you are not very serious about coming. And they probably will not give you the Aliyah certificate that you need to get on a plane to get here. Even if you're Arnon Milchan or a billionaire? <laughs> That's a very good question. There are exceptions, I was told, to people who, quote unquote, make a very important contribution to the state of Israel. Define contribution, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, yesterday you wrote an article with the headline, Blockbuster Reform Would Allow Israeli Civil Marriage and Severely Limit Aliyah, Aliyah being immigration. Apparently some kind of deal is being cooked up that would trade a concession on civil marriage for a change in the law of return, you know, basically redefining who is a Jew again. So who are the players in this deal and who would it serve? It sounds like a weird kind of trade-off, like here you can have civil marriage, but we want less olim, but there actually is some logic to this whole thing. Okay, explain the logic, Judy. The Minister of Interior, Matan Kahana, is an Orthodox Jew, I guess what we'd call modern Orthodox, compared to some of his predecessors, which were more ultra-Orthodox. And this is the latest reform he is going to try to execute. He's lately been trying to push for this reform in conversion. And one of the things he keeps saying when people say, why do we have to have this conversion reform? He says, look, we have this group of about 400,000, 500,000 individuals in Israel who came on Aliyah or are the children of people who came on Aliyah, but they're not halachically Jewish. Therefore, they can't legally marry in Israel. But some of them marry outside Israel or in unrecognized ceremonies in Israel. And he says, this is creating a problem of assimilation or intermarriage in Israel. Most people don't think there's an intermarriage problem in Israel, but he believes that there is because these 400,000 and their offspring are marrying Jewish Israelis. Because we've got to do something about this. And his idea is let's make it easier for them in a way, or let's make the conversion process friendlier so more of them will want to convert and we won't have to deal with this issue of intermarriage. Basically, he is saying here, the reason we have these 400,000 is because the law of return is pretty generous. Mm -hmm. As we were saying before, doesn't only allow Jews to immigrate and receive Israeli citizenship, but also the children of and grandchildren of. And he's saying, I want to stop letting grandchildren in. We can still let in children. Okay, obviously, if you have a Jewish mother, you're Jewish, according mm -hmm. to halakha. If you have a Jewish father, you're not Jewish, according to Halakha, but he would say you can still come. But if it's only one Jewish grandpa that you have, no more. He said, 
And in exchange, I would be willing to allow a certain form of civil marriage. It's not legalizing civil marriage. He doesn't want to put in Israeli law clause saying this is a civil marriage, right? Right. He just wants to kind of figure out a, a workaround, right? And what is that workaround? So you would be able to hold a civil marriage ceremony or have it recognized by the state of Israel if it is done in a foreign consulate that is based in Israel. This would mean that you don't no longer have to go to Cyprus or City Hall in New York to get married because what happens today is that if you are Jewish in Israel and you, but you do not want to get married through the rabbinate, you can get married not through the rabbinate, but your marriage will not be recognized by the state. Mm -hmm. So what people do to get their marriage recognized by the state is they go abroad, have a civil ceremony, and then they come back with a marriage certificate. And by international law, Israel has to recognize that. So instead of having them go abroad, he's saying, we'll let you do it in a foreign consulate here in Israel, which is kind of extraterritorial, but you don't have to get on a plane then. It's much easier. And we will recognize that. So that's the deal. Can you imagine the different consulates, you know, competing as destinations to have your wedding in Israel extraterritorially? And if it's a a poor country, they can put a wedding hall there, right? And make some money. (laughs) Nobody's against it. I think almost everyone in the government is for that. Mm -hmm. The problem is going to be the condition which is this change in the law of return. And we already heard that. Victor Lieberman, who's our finance minister now, and he's also heads this party that uh, draws most of its support from Russian speakers, he said, over my dead body. Mm -hmm. Because getting back to Ukraine, how many Jews are there in Ukraine? So... There's all sorts of statistics. Also, the non-Orthodox movements in Israel, there are people who have different definitions of being Jewish who uh, identify and would be kept out, right? Getting back to Ukraine, there's all these different estimates of the size of the population. So the basic halachic Jewish population is about 40,000, 50,000. What we call the law of return population, estimates are between 150 to 400,000. Just imagine if you change that law, that's going to make for a much smaller pool of people who are eligible to immigrate. And if there is a war and people want to get out and they change the law, that could be detrimental to them. Before we close out, if you move to Israel, say from Ukraine or anywhere else, you need to find a place to live. Mm-hmm. And there are some cities, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, that are getting very expensive. So because you cover such a wide range of topics, not only the Jewish world and not only religion, you wrote an article about the new hot, trendy city to move to if you're priced out of Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, but you still want to live an interesting cosmopolitan life. So can you tell us what that city is, why people are moving there, and if they're having a good time? Time after they move. So it connects to what we were just talking about, which is the Russian speaking population in Israel. Do you know that one out of every four residents of Haifa, Haifa, Haifa it is, one out of every four residents of Haifa, which is Israel's third largest city, are Russian speakers, mainly Russians or Ukrainians. And yes, Haifa is becoming a hot city. Many people have wondered, why did it take so long? So there's a couple things going on here. And I'll tell you how I came onto this story. I was talking to Anat Hoffman, the chairwoman of Women of the Wall, the feminist prayer group. And um, 
She was born in Jerusalem 67 years ago, lived her whole life in Jerusalem, and she's like the poster girl for progressive Jerusalem. She was a city councilwoman for Meretz for many years, and her whole life is tied to Jerusalem. She said to me, guess what? I'm moving. I said, what? Where? Haifa. So it turns out there's a lot of Jerusalem. Now, what brought her there? Well, yes, the real estate is much more affordable. And she bought this fantastic place two minutes from the beach that she probably couldn't even buy a bathroom for in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. But that wasn't it. She said she could not deal with the tensions in Jerusalem anymore. It's a very, very diverse city, Jerusalem. You've got Jews and Arabs and uh, Haredim and uh, seculars, but there's so much tension between the two groups, between all those groups. So this is what other people who I spoke to came from Jerusalem. Yes, the affordability was was important, but the, the other advantages they got in Haifa was that it's also diverse. Haifa is very much like Jerusalem in that you have Arabs and Jews, and you actually have also a pretty big Haredi population there. And as I was saying, the the Russian speakers, and there's like this new gay scene that is starting to thrive there. So you have a lot of everything, but it's so much more relaxed. If there is a place where you can say there is some semblance of coexistence in Israel, it's there. Mm -hmm. And it's also what a lot of people say is the topography. You have no other city in Israel where you get both the mountains and the sea. And you have the train. If you live like Anat Hoffman in this area, it's this neighborhood called Bat Galim, which is right on the beach. You can walk to the train station. In an hour and a half, you're in Jerusalem. In an hour, you're in Tel Aviv. You know what? Working on that piece, Allison, I really started thinking that maybe I should move to Haifa. Sounds like a good idea or work in real estate because you're making a really good case for it, a pitch. But it also sounds like it's fun because they used to say, right, that uh, Tel Aviv parties, Jerusalem praise and Haifa work. So it also had sort of a working, very serious image. And now there's cafes and there's nightlife and a lot of young uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel are moving out of their small villages and settling in Haifa, too. Right. Right. right, Exactly. So Haifa, think about it, huh? You too. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Judy, thanks so much for coming on and talking about all your diverse articles. Everyone, go on Haaretz.com and read them all. Thanks, Allison. It was great speaking to you. And that wraps up another edition of Haaretz Weekend. Many thanks to my guests, to my producer, Don Brumer, and my editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next time, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv.